This month's Where'd the Road Go is sponsored by four awesome people. Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Indrid Cold, and 36 Dingo. If you want to become a patron, www.wheretheroadgo.com. And now our show. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheretotheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And tonight I have with me Super Inframan. Hello, hello. Sometimes known as Saxon. <laughs> and Taylor. Just Taylor. Just Taylor. <laughs> How's it going? Sometimes with a bell. Sometimes. But it's only for magical rituals. <laughs> or summoning spirits. <laughs> with what? Or summoning spirits. Right. Yes, of course. Um, so, you... This is funny because um, John Shooter had sent me a message and he's like, oh, you should look at this uh, this podcast. Uh, let me pull it up. Um, it was a podcast in the UK on, what did we say it was? Aphasia? No, it's not aphasia. Aphasia is different. Uh, aphantasia. Is that what it is? Hmm. Yep. A-P-H-A-N-T-A-S-I-A. You sound very certain. Country of origin, please. <laughs> and, uh, okay, wait, here it is. He said, heard a very good pod just now on Aphantasia. Yeah, it, it sounds like a Disney movie. Um, it really does. It is only recently, like 2008, that around 2%, I don't know, that around 2% of people have no mind's eye, cannot visualize a cat, but can describe one. And he suggested it would make a good conversation for a roundtable. Uh, and also to ask uh, listeners if, you know, if they have this uh, to comment on the stuff we're going to talk about. Um, and then like a couple days later, Taylor, you meant you wrote about this in the Slack and you're like, Hey, I have this and I didn't know it. Yep. And so you want to explain to people how, like, like, so most people, if you say visualize a cat, they could see a cat in their mind. So I, okay. So I have a lot of problems with this whole situation and, uh, and I'll be honest when I, when I discovered that this was a thing, um, last summer, I didn't believe it because I, I the way that I experience imagination is not necessarily visual, right? But I can still I can still uh, imagine full scenes with you know with visualization, with color, with all this other stuff. But I don't actually see them, right? And so this is uh, somebody I know had meant um, messaged me basically saying that they were having a hard time with this, being able to visualize things. And I I tried to explain that nobody can, and that what actual visualization is 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 more of a like in, an imagination of um, perception and all this stuff. And I must have come off sounding like just like, I don't know, just a complete jerk or something <laughs> because I, I found out fairly recently and, uh, and I found this out by reading some articles and then talking to a bunch of people in my life that apparently people can just like actually see things that they're imagining in color, like with their eyes closed or open. Right. And so I had no idea, had no idea that that was a thing people could experience. What, um, but what? I'm also, I'm, I, I, I would not call myself unimaginative and I, and I certainly wouldn't say that I'm, I'm bad at visualizing, but you know, it gets down to that. What is the definition of visualizing, right? Are we talking about yes. color and shape that you're actually seeing or are we talking about, um, uh, you know, I, I don't have another word for it. Imagination. You know, it, it's hard to understand what somebody else is experiencing in their mind. Yep. Like it's bad and enough so, that shared reality can sometimes be questionable, but when it's completely <laughs> internal, right? 
like I did a meditation practice at one point many, many years ago when I was working on focus, which I should really do more of, um, where I would take a symbol. I think in this case, it was a pentagram. And I literally created it in my mind's eye, could see it in my head, and I kept it there while I went about my day. And I literally had it spinning. Okay. And I would just try to always have it there. Like my, 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 I, the, the idea of it was take a symbol, put it there, and just let it be there the whole time. So I'm always conscious that it's there while I'm functioning on another level doing everyday stuff. And I was yeah, eventually, I was eventually, I was eventually able to do it for like probably, I don't know, eight, nine hours before I'd forget about it and then be like, ah, oh, I lost, I lost it, you know? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned a pentagram because that's um, last summer when I was um, trying some different like meditation practices and trying to kind of change the way that I do um, ritual practice. One of the things I was trying to do was visualize, uh, you know, a five pointed star and uh, and be able to kind of see it, literally see it in, in my mind's eye, which mm -hmm. at the time I didn't realize that that was a thing that people can just do easily all the time. So I was I was assuming that being able to get to that point where you can kind of manifest a visual thing was something that you could probably only achieve through things like meditation. Um, and I could get there kind of right. Like I could I could kind of I could see it every once in a while, but it'll fade immediately. Recently, I've been trying it again and, and I can I can pull up a shape. I've been doing a triangle recently and um, and it'll just kind of fade or or, you know, spin out or whatever. But um, there's a chart and I posted that in the Slack uh, as well. There's a chart with um, this red star on it and it shows like a, a variety. So like the first one is just absolutely black. It's just nothing. And then the, the next ones like second, third and fourth ones are sort of the outline of a star. And then it gets into kind of this gray, you know, well-defined shape. And then the last one is um, like an actual full on colored red star, basically. Right. And I shared this chart with people and I, I started asking, like, can you can you do this? Like, can you actually see these things if you if you think about this? And overwhelmingly, people can. And a, a surprising amount of people were actually at the the, the six, the full on well defined with color and everything. Mm -hmm. But most people were around a three or a four. Oh. That's interesting. How many people did you talk to? Do you think? Uh, in the like two or three days that I was kind of being a nut about it, I think I probably talked to 20 ish people. Something like that. That's not a internet. bad sample yeah. size. That's pretty good. Yeah. I was, I was kind of mad to be honest. I feel like I've gone my entire life like missing something. <laughs> Fair. Taylor, how do you, how do you dream? Uh, oh, in, in full color with, with, you know, audio and sound and everything is tangible. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And if, if I'm like earlier today, I was really tired. So I was just kind of sitting in my chair and had my eyes closed, but I was still awake and I could begin to kind of see, um, you know, moving images, um, while I was still awake. And that happens, you know, it's, it's like, um, uh, like hypnopompic, right. but with my eyes closed, you're, you're daydreaming. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it usually happens while I'm falling asleep. So then when I notice it, I become more active and it goes away, but, um, um, yeah. So John's other question about this was, is there a correlation between people who can't visualize things and paranormal experience? Like, I can't remember, Taylor. Have you had paranormal experiences? I, I have. Okay. Um, I've seen a couple things I would call UFOs, um, and I've had some other uh, odds and ends here or there throughout my life. Okay. All right. That's an interesting question, though. Yeah. Um, you know, and one of the things I noticed with, um, you know, people who have aphantasia versus people who can visualize things clearly um, there's okay. I'm going to go ahead and say there is no direct correlation between whether you can visualize something and whether you're a creative person or can draw or whatever. 
However, there is seemingly a slight correlation between not being able to visualize things, having aphantasia, and having better skills at creative endeavors, which is something that I, I, I did a little bit of research on this. And I guess um, one of the people, some executive of Pixar, I think, um, basically did a study within the organization and found that um, a lot of the was it a lot of the project managers and the people who are more on the enterprise level and technical level um, could see things very well, could visualize things very well. And a lot of the artists could not, which is kind of interesting. Huh. That is exactly the opposite of what I would uh, think. <laughs> yeah. Would be. Exactly. Yeah. It's super weird. So they're, you know, they're, they're better at putting the stuff down, but not necessarily visualizing it internally. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's odd. So one of my roommates, um, would be like a six on the chart. And when I, I showed him the chart and talked to him about it, he immediately he was like, Oh, constantly I can, you know, constantly see cartoons and images and all this stuff. And he, you know, I, he's a very, creative person but he has a really hard time um with drawing for instance and i've been a graphic designer for half my life you know i've i've been an illustrator i've been you know a, a writer and all, and all these other things that utilize the visual imagination but i don't see i don't see it in any kind of like um physical defined way i imagine sort of what the thing would look like and then i have to get it down on paper and make it right i think that's kind of why hmm. the whole thing is weird i don't know what, what about you guys can you um can you see um what level can you see things very clearly i i would say a six for me okay um but i'm not necessarily good at art i'm good at taking um like uh, video, you know, like I can picture something like, oh, I want, I want this shot to look like this, and I can kind of replicate it. It never quite looks as good as it does in my head. Sure. Um, but that's, you know, I mean, reality is different than what you can picture in your head. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm not like an artist or anything. I can't really draw or anything like that. Okay. What about you, Saxon? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say I'm a six too, but you know, what's interesting, like, um, you know, my, my attempts at sketching and things like that and my love of, of comics and everything, like I, I do connect a, a little bit with what you're saying about, like, I don't imagine what I would want to draw on a page. And, 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 you know, this is something that I'm just a hobbyist. This is not something I put a lot of my time into. Um, so I, I don't know how direct a correlation that is, but yeah, I, I assume that, uh, you know, artists would really would like have the whole image in their head. Um, however, like if you get me to look at a picture and ask me to remember it, then go back and draw it or whatever. I'm really good at replicating things like that. Yeah. Okay. That's something that I saw in some of these studies was that people, people who can visualize things were much better at, at replicating things from memory. Um, yeah. I've, I've got a friend who, when I was talking to him about it, he, he looked at me like I was dumb. Like, yeah, of course I can visualize things. He said, <laughs> I, he said, I can full 3d CAD parts in my head. Like he's a, wow. he's an engineer. And, and I'm like, what? But he also, you know, I mean, he's I would not say that he's like visually creative as far as like art or graphic design or something. Um, He's definitely like poked around at it. But um, usually in those cases, I think he's kind of come to me and said, hey, can you help make this thing? Right. Um, but when it comes to the paranormal. So um, between the three of us, we've got kind of a widespread. Yeah. Right. So. Sarah, you obviously have had um, anomalous, you know, occurrences your whole life. Mm -hmm. Saxon, I, I don't, I don't recall, but you've had a couple, right? You've had some things. I, I've had it like a consistent amount throughout my life. Not a lot, but consistent would be how I would okay. describe it. Okay, okay. And I've had a, a few. Like I would say they're very rare, but you know, we're not a great sample size. But it's that's a very interesting question. You know, what does that look like? You know, and for listeners and stuff, if you if you have, you know, if you have a fantasia or hyperphantasia, which would be like a six on that scale. 
being able to very clearly see things or or if you're in the middle or whatever what kind of paranormal experiences have you had if any and do you you know do you find a correlation between those things yeah well you know and, and i wonder too um you know you're talking about your friend that can like you know picture cad 3d images in his head and folding in and out and what have you like if your brain is so geared to a certain type of visualization I kind of put that next to linguistics, how you think in the words that you know, whereas, you know, somebody that speaks a different language where the language may use words that are more vague or abstract or have different grammar, their their thought processes are different. Um, right. And, and I wonder how much, you know, the, there's a correlation here between like the rigidity of someone who could visualize, you know, uh, a gear functioning in CAD versus, you know, what you're talking about, the way you operate, where you have a, a description, but not necessarily like as solidified in reality. Right. So it gives you a little bit more room to play with it. Mm. Yeah. Like if I picture two gears, you know, interlocking and stuff, I can I can imagine that. Right. But I'm not you know, I couldn't tell you how many spokes the gears have. You know, right. I could tell you right. which direction they're moving right. in. But um, yeah. And, you know, and that that's it's interesting that you, you um, bring up like language, because I think I wonder how much of this, uh, you know, we're talking about this as adults. Right. And I don't know. You know, I don't know how kids may experience visual imagination. But I wonder if it's something that because we don't talk about it, you know, um, when we're younger, we don't talk about it to kids that, you know, when we're younger, we develop whatever way that we're going to do this. And like a muscle, you know, or like neural pathways, it strengthens over time and we just kind of get locked into one way of, of doing things. And we yeah. don't know that there are other ways. Well, that that and, you know, I mean, how many times do kids have very vivid imaginal realms that the adults are like, that's not real? Yeah, right, yeah. right. And so they're interpreting something. They may be interpreting something very real uh, in their own way that they're then learning to ignore and their brain learns to ignore it so that they don't see it anymore. It's not important. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know, it, it, it makes me think of like, uh, you know, people that don't have internal monologues, too, but might develop one as they get older. Um, so that was the other thing. Um, how do you guys experience that? What What is going on in your head throughout the day? Uh, in a sense, I'm, I'm talking to myself. And, and I am, too. And I regret that I do that because, <laughs> well, yeah, it, it was something I realized when I was probably like 14 or 15 that I did not have you know, the interior or inner monologue of talking to myself mm. because, you know, every book I read, the characters were, or the, the, whoever, you know, they would tell you their thoughts or the same thing with comic books and thought balloons or, or any of that. And so I was like, Oh, I feel like I should be doing that. And mm -hmm. I forced myself into that. And now I'm like, did I create a lot of inefficiencies in how I think and how I process things? Or did I help myself by doing that? I don't right. know. I mean, I'll, I'll out and out talk to myself if I'm by myself. And a lot of yeah. times it'll be like, as I'm figuring something out. So it'll be like, yep. or I've, I've learned to ask myself, how do you feel? And I'll stop and assess. How do I feel right now? Okay. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Because like, I don't think about that stuff. And so like, I'll be like, how am I feeling? I'm feeling okay, I guess. All right. You know? Yeah, that, that is interesting. I, I kind of flow between some different states um, as I've been more conscious about like what I'm experiencing day to day. I would say, you know, it, it really kind of flows back and forth between the core thing that's always there is like abstract um, ideas, images. And when I say images, I don't mean like visual, obviously, but like concepts of things, mm -hmm. you know, ideas. Uh, thoughts without words, thoughts without any kind of like physical form. Uh, I think about it as emotions. 
And we talked about this at some point in the past uh, about communication without language. And my my thought with that was that before, you know, as we're thinking things, we are having thoughts um, without words. And those thoughts are kind of, you know, pure and they're, they're made of intent and emotion. And then our brains filter those into words. So that's how I experience things. But apparently not everybody necessarily experiences things that way, which I that blew my mind. Right. Um, right. But the other sides of it is if, if I would say that's always going on, then sometimes like like you said, Sarai, if you're figuring something out, I will like talk to myself in my head or, you know, or out loud. And uh, and and literally work through things with words um, or a lot of the times it's just music like mm. hard stop. If I'm just doing something routine, I'm just singing in my head. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, one of the things. So I'll get music in my dreams. And sometimes it's okay. songs that are annoying to me. Like it's not necessarily bad <laughs> songs, but just like overly catchy songs I like, but don't want in my head. And I'll wake up with it in my mm-hmm. head going, Oh, come on. <laughs> that actually kind of happened to me the other day. I was, uh, napping and, uh, got the song, um, bad in a good way by, uh, Brian Bulger, I think is the I guy's name. No idea. Yeah. That's I woke up and I'm like, I haven't heard that song in years. And I just kind of woke up singing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. A lot of times it'll be songs that uh, that I haven't heard in forever, and suddenly it's in my dream. Um, if if my brain defaults to a song for some reason, it's NIB from Black Sabbath. Mm, okay, I have okay, no idea why. I, I can live with that. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's not it's not awful. I mean, it's a good song. It's just I don't know why it's that song. It's never been like a favorite song of mine or anything like that. It's just. If I go brain hub something, it'll be like do 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 do. It's like oh, there's NIB. Sure. All right, mine's a H by Tool. Ah, I think my my second one would be the theme to Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Those How about are you, the, Saxon? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Those are my brain's default musical selections. Apparently, your, your internal jukebox. <laughs> You know, you, I yeah. I think for me, it's probably it would probably be a Led Zeppelin song mm. if I had to to think about it, but. I don't end up there very often, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, when you're you're talking about memory, this is something else that popped into my head. Like, uh, you know, and it goes back to us talking about aviation in the the, um, off road segments. They'll give you uh, uh, like radio frequencies to turn to. And they're they're a five number sequence. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've got to remember it because you got to like repeat it back to them immediately. And then you've got to turn the radio to that, that that frequency. And um, usually you've got somebody else in the airplane, like writing it down at the same time. But I can remember those. I'm very good at those five number sequences because I've got a lot of practice at it. But I can't visualize what the numbers are. I just know the sounds of the numbers. Huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, that makes sense. you know, the, the frequency they give you is like, you know, um, 7732, uh, you know, flip over to approach 18581. And I'll remember the 18581, but uh, I, I don't actually know what the numbers are in my head. I just know the sounds for them. Right. Until the pattern. I give myself more time to think about it. I, I I do something very similar with numbers. Um, I used to work at retail stores, so memorizing SKUs was kind of a thing that we needed to do. And I think about it as like um, key bidding codes, if you're familiar with. So like if you have a key, like a house key, um, it's cut to various lengths. Oh, yeah. So I yeah. think about the numbers in their order as being sort of like heights, like one is very short, eight is very tall, you know, oh. five is kind of in the middle. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm if I have to memorize a number, that's sort of how I think about it. I uh I used to know people's phone numbers by the pattern, not by the oh. number. So like oh interesting. So like if someone said what's so and so's phone number, I'm like I don't know, give me a phone. Uh, it's that you know. Oh yeah, like the, like the key presses. Yeah, yeah, pre cell yeah. phone where you couldn't just say call so and so. Yep. Like it would just be like I I would know the pattern for that person. I wouldn't necessarily know their number. 
That's, yeah. that's cool. I wonder if we would say that's like uh, you have a strong kinetic memory or something like that. I, I, I don't know, but you know, there's those things as you're growing up where people talk about like modes of learning and some people are better from repetition. Some yeah. people are better from listening. Some people yep. are better from reading. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And if you write something down, you're more likely to be able to remember it. Not because you have it yes, on a piece yes. of paper. I mean, that would be the obvious thing, but, but the act of writing it down uh, right. affects your memory in such a way that it sticks in your memory better. Even more so than typing, apparently. Yes. Yeah. Now, I was thinking about, like, I don't know if you'd call it kinetic memory or, or what, but the other day, um, when I uh, when I remember things, I often don't have um, a very, like, super clear spatial memory. Like, uh, I may forget where I put something. So the other day was my, my headphones. I put them down somewhere and I went and did something else. And I didn't remember where I put them, but I could trace back to what I was doing when I put them down. Yes. And I knew, yeah. oh, right, you know, it's a contextual memory. It's almost like, like a relational database. Like... Oh, I called somebody, so I took them out of my ears and I set them down. And and when I called that person, I was standing here looking in this direction, so I must have put them on my record player, right, you know, or whatever. Right. Yeah, I try. I try to not put things down in unusual places, but it happens occasionally. Yep. Um, you know, so like there there are certain places like my keys. I generally will only put down in certain places, so that if I can't find my keys, it's like okay, they're in one of three places, and if they're not, I'm like, oh crap. Yeah, I try to do that too for the most part. Every once in a while. Yeah. I have uh I have cameras everywhere and there was I had a I was cleaning stuff like just with a spray cleaner and I couldn't find it. I'm like, where did I put it? Like and I'm looking all around the house and I'm like, I don't I don't understand. Where was I? I was in this room, okay, it's not in this room. I was in this room, it's not in this room. I'm like, all right, it's gotta be it's a big green bottle. How can I not find it? And uh, I I have cameras in most of the rooms, so I, I went back to the cameras and I saw the last room I was in with the spray cleaner, and then I walked into the office where there's no camera. I'm like, and then I the next time I'm walking out of the office, I don't have it, and I'm going, it's in the office. Okay. And yep. I start scrolling, going around the office. I put it behind something, <laughs> and I'm like, if I didn't oh, have those cameras, uh, this would have been a lot harder. Interesting. <laughs> But it was just one of those mindless things. We do a lot of things without really thinking about it. Yep. Yes. And, you, you know, know. Go ahead, Thrive. No, oh, I was just going to say, we do it without thinking about it. And then we don't, when we go back to retrieve that information, it's not there because we weren't really thinking when we did it. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a random night where, uh, you know, my wife and I were doing something in the kitchen and like I had just come in from somewhere and I, she needed me to like get something down like right away, like maybe a pot or something because something was overflowing on the, the stove. I set my phone on top of the refrigerator because I had it in my hand and was just like putting it down as quick as I could to, to help out. I lost my phone for three days. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Because I looked all over the kitchen. But I never thought to look on top of the refrigerator. Right. You know, and it's obviously, you know, it's just a little bit above line of sight. Didn't cross my mind. I mean, it was, oh, it was so frustrating. And, yep. uh, you know, the 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 find my phone feature doesn't zoom in enough so you can, like, figure out the room. I'm like, what's in the house? You know? <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Because it just goes like the with the pin or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know, you know, my spatial memory generally is pretty good, but you know, if you put me in a room, I've been in several, uh, you know, a few times and turn the lights off. Like I feel like I can get around pretty well. Okay. And not yep. be in fear of like falling over and hitting my head on anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's fair. So the, the, um, there's, yeah, go, ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just gonna, um, I, I have a, a memory, um, or something that happened that's similar to your phone situation where I was making bacon and I set um, this uh, this pan. I just like moved it over to the other side of the counter, you know, because I needed to move something. 
um, continued making bacon, moved on. And later that day, um, my dad was like, where, where's my wallet? Like, have you seen my wallet? And I'm like, no, I haven't. And, uh, and we backtracked and we went over to, you know, where he last had it. Uh, you know, he ended up calling the restaurant that we were at, you know, and all these other places like tracing through the, all the steps. And he's like, I cannot find it the next day. Um, he, <laughs> I have no idea how we found it, but he's like, so I found my wallet. It was in the or in the oven, like in the back of the oven. And oh my it was like God. all crispy. Cause apparently it got cooked with the bacon. <laughs> but how did it end up in the oven in the first place? So it had a magnetic flap on it and it got magnetized to the oh, metal pan. Oh, wow. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like, I was like, what? how did that even happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to pull up some of the, the quotes that I had taken from the Invisible Gorilla book because uh, they're fairly relevant here. Um, it says uh, one of them is expectations are based on our prior experiences of the world. And perception builds on that experience. So again, if we're if we're blocking something out, you know, or if we've never experienced something, we tend to our brain sometimes doesn't perceive it. Right. Well, it's and I think I mean I don't I'm not a neuros, neuroscientist, but that could go back to some of those pathways. Yes. Right? Like, yeah. Uh, memory. Oh, so. Memory depends on both what actually happened and how we made sense of what happened. Okay. Uh, and then this paragraph is uh, when we perceive something, we extract the meaning from what we see, hear, or smell. Rather than encode everything in perfect detail, it would be uncharacteristic wastes of energy and other resources to have a brain designed to take in every possible stimuli with equal fidelity when there is little uh, for an organism to gain from such a strategy. Likewise, memory doesn't store everything we perceive, but instead takes what we have seen or heard and associates it with what we already know. These associations mm -hmm. help us discern what is important and to recall details about what we've seen. They provide retrieval clues that make our memories more fluent. In most cases, cases, such cues are helpful, but these associations can also lead us astray precisely because they lead to an inflated sense of the precision of memory. We cannot easily yeah. distinguish between what we recall verbatim and what we construct based on associations and knowledge. Yep, that, that tracks. Yes. That, uh, wow. That makes me think of like, so I, I tend to listen to podcasts multiple times, especially like gaming podcasts I'll re-listen to. And I have like this weird phenomenon where um, if I'm listening to a podcast a second time, while I'm hearing all the things that are going on, I'm playing back in my head where I was the first time I heard it. And like, you know, if especially if it's within a few days, I'm like playing back all the individual like, OK, you know, I drove to the store. I parked, right. I went in, I yep. got these things, all that stuff. Yeah, I can I can remember where I had conversations with people, but not necessarily when. Mm -hmm. Like I, it's I, just I, a feeling. I, I've talked about this, I think, fairly recently on the show uh, when I was working on the autobiography. Um when I was given the name Soraya, I was sitting in the back seat of a car. It was spoken into my right ear, which was the side that was against the window. Um, and so, like, but I remember where I was, like, very clearly. My memories, I was like, oh, we were driving, you know, up from uh, Willard on 96, right by the psychiatric center when this happened. But then I started thinking, I'm like, but wait a minute. The girl who was asleep next to me lived right next to there like we just passed her house oh, right. when this happened and i'm like why would we have not dropped her off that doesn't make any sense and so when i looked you know finally got up to that part uh in writing the book you know because this memory was crystal clear we did not drop her off and she was asleep next to me so i'm like what what is going on and it turns out she came here first my friend picked us up from here so her car was here which is past her house oh, so we okay. so we had to come back to my house so she could get her car and go home and I was like, 
okay, good. It's not like some memory glitch. That actually makes sense now that I realize, oh, she came here first. Yep. Right. It, it, the nice thing is you didn't convince yourself that she wasn't there. Right. Right. But I just felt like, how does this, how does this memory make sense? This memory doesn't make sense, but it was accurate. So I wonder what that says about our ability to begin to understand how our, our minds work and, uh, and start developing more reliability in our memories. Like what, what kinds of things we can do to stop thinking about them as video recorders and start thinking about them in terms of the, 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 the context and the associations. Well, I, th- I, I think too many people assume that if they remember something, they remember it correctly. Actually, there's another paragraph yeah. I wanted to read. Um, when we retrieve a memory, we can falsely believe that we are fetching a recording of something that happened to us rather than uh, somewhat, someone else. Right, something that happened to us rather than someone else. Although we believe that our memories contain precise amounts of what we see and here, in reality, these records are remarkably scanty, and what we retrieve often is filled in based on uh, inference and other influences and is more than likely improvised um, from a familiar memory. So it's more of a, yeah, rather than a digital recording of an original performance. Yeah, that kind of goes back into the idea that I've always heard when you remember something, you're essentially remembering the last time you remembered it. You're not remembering the thing itself. Right, right. And it says the vividness of our recollection is tied to how much it affects us emotionally. Um, And beware of memories accompanied by strong emotions and vivid details because they are just as likely to be wrong as mundane memories, but you're far less likely to realize it. You know, that's something I've read about with people uh, dealing with PTSD, where those memories are etched so heavily that it, you know, that's where you get some of these concepts of like things in slow motion, because it's like recording every detail. Um, Then, of course, then you're trying to process it. And then the memory is not exactly what happened either. Right. Um, That's fascinating to me, the the way that it can affect you, though. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, one of the experiments they do in the book, and I didn't write all this down. I made a note about it because at some point I either want to talk to these two who wrote the book or at least do a show on it if they're not willing to come on. Um, they had a, uh, camera in a lab, I guess at the college, uh, when 9-11 happened. So they talked to the people, this was like 2008, I think, or something like that. And they talked to the people who were there, who they had on camera responding to what happened. And they say, tell us what happened that day. And, you know, how, how reliable you think your memory is on this. And most people, because it was such a traumatic thing, such an emotional thing to most people, they were like, oh, no, I remember that like it was yesterday, at crystal clear, and every single one of them was wrong. Huh. Oh, wow. They were, in some cases, close, but wrong. Like, their, their crystal clear, absolute certainty of their memory, like, yeah, something similar to that happened, but it wasn't what they thought happened. Or they'd have things out of order, or they would think someone was there who wasn't. Um, but they they discovered that, yeah, even these really crystal clear memories that people are very confident in can be just as wrong as a regular memory. Oh, that is interesting. You know, and that's like a lot of people remember seeing things like, you know, the, the uh, they'll be like, oh, I remember seeing a plane hit the first tower, but we didn't see that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We saw, I think later, some footage showed up where they were filming something and they happened to catch it. But initially, the tower was hit before, the, you know, before anyone was filming. We saw the second tower get hit. Right, right. Yeah. It was so you sudden. That, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Or, or Taylor, I'm sorry to mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, you're good. I was just saying the plane hitting was, was really sudden. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is this is sort of an aside, but along the same same lines, but not not as intense. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, I've been surprised and I would be curious if this has happened to both of you where 
you see what you want to see and then you realize that's not what you saw <laughs> like what? like what give me an example well so for me an example might be like uh well seeing or hearing or like okay that car turned this way I, i'm for sure that's what just happened you know they made a left up there and then it turns out no they made a right or ah you know something like that where it's like man i know that's what i saw Yep, but it, yep. it wasn't. But it fit the narrative you told yourself about, you know, and, and this is short term memory, of course, not yeah. long term. Yeah, yeah, I mean, even perception can can mess with you like that. I almost got, I almost got into a pretty well. I didn't almost get into a car accident, but potentially could have. Uh, <laughs> during the day, driving driving by Samson Park, there's this long straightaway, and I looked and I saw a car, but it looked like the car was on my side, turn you know, turning. But it wasn't. It was actually on the other side coming towards me. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and so I mm-hmm. went to pass the car that was in front of me because it was someone who would be doing like 50 and then 30 and then 50 and then 30. And I'm like, if you just pick something, you know, I'm just going to go around you. This is a long straightaway. Yeah. And so as I pulled out, by the time I was next to this guy, I realized, oh, that car's coming right at me. And <laughs> the car next to me slammed on the brakes and the other car, you know, slowed down. So there was no like it wasn't a close call or anything. But I'm just like, oh, my God, I almost just caused like this major collision because for some reason, my brain said that car was going the other way. Like, I didn't do it intentionally. I wouldn't have gone had I seen him. And Mm -hmm. like, I pull back into the lane in front of the other car and immediately get pulled over. And I'm like, of course, there was a cop, you know, like, why, why would there not have been a cop? And before I even (laughs) like react, he's knocking on my window and I roll the window down. He's like, what were you thinking? And I'm like, I. I, I don't know. I thought the car, I didn't, you know, and I explained it to him and he's like, okay, all right, don't do that again. Just be careful. And he let me go. Right. And yeah. I was like, yeah. I think he was a sh- more shaken up than I was. I wonder yeah. where he yeah. was in that situation. Like, was he parked or, or I, like behind I don't, you? I have no idea where he came from. Like, he just suddenly yeah, was right behind there. me. And I'm like, of course there was a cop when I did something <laughs> stupid, you know? But, right. but like I said, it, it, I wouldn't have gone had I known that car was coming at me. But my brain said, no, that car's turning. You know, it's, it's going with the road, turning to the left as the road turns to the left. But it was actually coming from the left mm-hmm. in my lane. And wow. it was just a perception error. Yeah. It's a, I don't know. It's amazing how... Uh, we really, you know, in some cases can't trust the things that we experience, even no, though no. that's all we really have, right? And I mean, how many times have we have we gone through the motions, uh, and I know I've done it, gone through the motions of like looking both ways, but you're not really processing it. Sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, it, you know, I'm in my early 40s and I've gotten to the point now where I, I'm always mildly suspicious of what I see. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I... I have noticed that I have done things kind of like what you're talking about on a a little bit more frequent basis than I used to. And I'm like, you know, that could turn out to be something bad if I'm not careful. Or maybe you're just noticing it more than you used to. Well, that's the other thing. I could have been doing this this whole time. Exactly. Well, that, you know, uh, Saxon, what you said earlier about um, the way that our kind of short term memory may, you know, we we may not remember what we've just perceived correctly, but invent some kind of a, a narrative. That is one of the biggest reasons that I still doubt my, like what I consider my first UFO experience. And I still kind of qualify it whenever I tell this story because I have a very clear memory of what I saw when, when I saw it, I wrote it down immediately. And, you know, I could, I could recount that. I think, right. I could recount it pretty accurately to what I wrote down, but in the moment, there were a couple of details about what I saw that my, that immediately I felt like, did I just make that up? Did, did this actually, did I see the thing that I think I saw? Well, explain, and so my ex- memory, explain the yeah, experience to everyone. Uh, sure. So I was, um, delivering pizzas and uh, I was out back 
um, behind the uh, behind the pizza shop smoking and uh, waiting for a delivery to come through. And uh, and just looking up at the, at the at the sky, it was summer. It was probably ten o'clock, ten thirty, or uh, yeah, a little after ten o'clock. And I see um, a satellite, what I thought was a satellite, coming from my right, uh, coming across to the left. And I was watching it because I had seen a couple that night. Um, and it it stopped. So this is what I this is what I remember seeing, and basically what I wrote down. It stopped in in the middle of the sky. Didn't slow down or anything. Just stopped. And then there was a flash of light around it, like a white flash. And then this sort of blue um, kind of light sort of teardrop shaped thing that seemed to come out of it or come towards it or something for maybe a second or two seconds. And then another white flash almost looked like a, a camera flash, like the size of my pinky nail. If I hold it up at arm's length, very small. Mm-hmm. And then after the second flash, it shot off into basically a different direction, super fast. And so I, you know, I see this, I'm watching it happen. My brain is trying to process it. As soon as it sped off, uh, my, my brain went, oh, that was not normal, right? Whatever I just saw was not like something that should happen. Right. Um, so I was very excited and I wrote it down and, and everything. But now, you know, and, and even then, when I look back at it or when I think about the experience, I wonder, am I making up the details about like the flashes of light that I saw or the blue, whatever? Like I can picture it so clearly, but I, I don't feel that I can trust my memory. But you wrote it down at the time. I did. And right. But is- even at the time when I was experiencing it, I was thinking, am I actually seeing this? Mm, okay. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, Whereas with uh, the next UFO experience I had, or one a little bit later, it was so vivid it was, and, and so like tangible and close and in broad daylight that there was no denying it, uh, you know, absolutely. And I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm looking back at the road. I'm looking back at it, you know, multiple times for like 15, 20 seconds. And then I look back and it's totally gone. And like I wa- I, that I, one, I, I can't deny. I want you to tell that one too. But before you do the, one of the experiences I had, which I feel is kind of similar was looking up and seeing these, these spots of light shoot across the sky, almost like a shooting star, except it would go into almost like a portal, but it was like a portal that would form like a screen wipe on a uh, movie would, and it would go in a circle and the thing would disappear. And then another one of those would appear and it would come out of it and then go into another one of those. And I looked at it when I, am I actually seeing this? You know, cause it was, it was small. And so I looked away and blinked my eyes a bunch of times and looked up and continued to see it. It was like, I'm not sure I'm actually seeing this. Like it's weird mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm, I'm actively seeing it, but still doubting what I'm seeing because it seems so strange. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, perception is very strange. So your second, the, the other UFO, explain that, that, that experience to people. Sure. So, I, and I think like thinking about it, I think it was the third time that I saw something anomalous in the sky, but I, I was driving to, uh, I was driving somewhere basically towards, um, where my parents live and, um, on this freeway and it's sort of like, you know, a freeway that's going North and it kind of clover leaves around, um, to the right and then, you know, starts going West. So you're doing this big loop. Mm-hmm. And as I'm coming down the loop, I can see over the bridge, you know, the, the freeway I was just driving on and I see this thing in, in the sky and it was, it was close. Uh, it was huge. And, um, the only way I can describe it is like a, a mishmash of metallic looking shapes, um, is, you know, very geometric, very hard angles, multiple different shades of, of gray and silver, um, you know, light and dark and all that stuff. Um, when I was telling this to, uh, Barbara, um, she, uh, commented that it sounded like a Borg cube, um, which, uh, you know, that is probably the closest thing I could, I could describe as, um, describe it as. Although it wasn't a cube, it was in, in my mind, the picture I got at the time was like, if it was like one of those like fighter jets, um, like very angular looking fighter jets, 
but like folded up all weird. And oh, if there was a, like a plane or any kind of aircraft at that position, it was it was so low and so close that it it must have been crashing. Like there's no way something could be there and not be actively about to hit the freeway. Mm. Um, and so I see it over the freeway. I continue under the bridge. I come out the other side and it's still there. And I'm looking at it's on my left. I'm driving. I'm looking back at it, looking at the road, looking back at it. And I see it multiple times. And then at some point I look back and it's totally gone and there's nothing. And I keep looking and it's just, it's just gone. And, uh, so I, I, uh, immediately, uh, got a hold of my, my friend I was going to meet. And I said, you know, remind me to tell you about this weird thing that just happened. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I guess a fun kind of follow up to that was we were then out for a walk, that friend and I, and I was describing this story and we're walking through this neighborhood and we, we come up like, um, we cross a river and we come up out of the park into this other neighborhood and I'm explaining what it looked like and about the size and everything. And, and he says, well, you know, like how far away was it? Like how big was it and stuff? And I, I'm like, well, you know, trying to think of like a point for reference mm -hmm. and this, this helicopter comes out of nowhere like this yellow helicopter and just like careens into this neighborhood like very low very close you know when you can see a helicopter that's just absolutely huge in the sky because it's so close right and and i pointed at it, i was like uh, about like that about that far and about that big huh. and he was looking he's like huh and then it flew away like it basically like turned it like turned almost 180 degrees and then like hung out there for a second and then flew away in a different direction. And, and, uh, I, you know, I just said like, yeah, about like that. And he's like, what was that? Like, yeah. <laughs> Why did that just happen? <laughs> I was going to say that doesn't feel unconnected. Yeah. It was th that whole experience was bizarre. That's crazy. That's, that's wow. Cause that, that's almost like the experience was still happening without you realizing it. And as you're describing right. it, it, it sort of recreated itself, but with a different object. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was interesting. And it was so both of those situations were so vivid. I mean, it was like maybe 1 PM, 2 PM, right? Like bright, you know, sunlight, middle of summer, clear skies. And, and I, you know, it's just, it's so vivid in my memory I and I wrote it down cool. at the time as well. well in, in one of those, I don't know if this was just my brain or not. I was thinking about the shortly after I had seen the big UFO over Cayuga Lake, which was very bright, very prominent and stuff. And I'm like, and I'm looking up and there's a plane in the sky and I'm like, see, that's a plane. Like, that's obviously a plane. That's not, you know, anything anomalous. It doesn't fit like what I saw. And just as I'm thinking this, the whole thing turns into this big, big patch of light starts spinning. And I'm like, wait oh. a minute. And I look away and I look back and it's a plane again. I'm like, what the hell was that? Yeah. You know, like, I felt oh, like that, that was in my head. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, so what do I make of that? You know, just, I just, yep. it was just a random plane. I happened to look up and see, and then it looked like a UFO for a moment. That's super weird. I mean, it, could it possibly have been sunlight glinting off the plane or it was, was it, like it was totally at night? Different? Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Cause I'm like, huh. yeah, see, that's what a normal plane looks like. It has the, 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 you know, the one light going on and off. It has these particular colored lights. And then suddenly it was a spinning thing of lights. And I was like, no, no, that's, and I looked and again, I looked away and looked back and it was a plane again. And I was like, okay, what just happened to my brain? You know, that's oh, wild. Yeah. You know, uh, I haven't told this story out here in a long time, but uh, probably the first time I was on the show when we were doing listener stories, but I, I've referenced it once, once in a while where I talked about the giant snake head that was yes, in the water, the yeah. one that was eight feet across. You know, and this was just a head was eight feet across. I mean, it was, it was tremendous. And my brother and I both saw it and I was like, I think I was about seven. I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on my age, 
Oh, yeah. But I, I've convinced myself more than once that like that was just me misremembering something and sort of like a, you know, child sort of trying to process fear. And so but my brother saw it, too. And that's that's the only reason that I have not like put that memory somewhere else is like I made that up um, and he won't talk to me about it too much. But it'll be like, oh, yeah, no, I remember that. That thing was weird, you know. Yeah, but uh, nobody else saw it either. And that made it even stranger because we were there to sort of, you know, lunchtime family reunion looking out at the water and, and nobody saw it except for us. Well, I think, you know, when uh, when adults are dealing with kids, so like if you told this story to anybody and, and they told you it might have been your imagination. Like, I right. think that's a common thing that that we tell kids when they say something um, strange or whatever. But, you know, I, I have um, a couple of very clear memories, uh, one in particular of when I was a kid I, and I must have been probably seven or, or eight or something. I was staying at my grandma's house and I went like into the basement and I could see through the window or I could, you know, um, whatever I could see through the window. And I was imagining seeing this like monster from a from a movie that I'd watched um, and probably a Scooby Doo movie or something. And like picturing it coming towards the house. But I remember very clearly not seeing this. Right. But imagining what if this was happening? And I and it was so clear in my head that I freaked myself out about it. And I went and I told my grandma, I was like, you know, blah, 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 blah. And and I knew at the time and I, I know now that whatever that was, was in my head. I, I know that very clearly. And it wasn't it wasn't ever a moment where. I actually saw something and, you know, right. maybe that comes back to me not really having visual imagination like a lot of people do. I, I didn't see anything physically, but, you know, that is distinctly different to me than other experiences I've had where I have physically seen something. And, you know, and, and if someone were to tell me, oh, you're you know, that was your imagination or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, all of this stuff becomes so hard when, when you realize how, how our perception actually filters so much of this stuff out. Mm -hmm. And then if this stuff yes. ex exists outside of what our normal perception hits anyway, but I really, I mean, it's like kids having past life memories. You know, they're, they're pretty clear till about two and then they start losing them. Sure. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and it, is that because the brain is focusing on this existence at that point? Is it because they're being dismissed usually by the parents? Or combination. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or is it just that, you know, I mean, the brain only has so much it can focus on, so that's no longer important because it's not this life. Yeah, like for survival. Right. Yeah. But it's still, it's still, well, depending on who you ask, it's still there. You know, I mean, like there, there are people who believe in um, past lives and, and believe in the ability for things that happened in your past life to, to influence, you know, your personality or your behaviors and, yeah. and, like oh, yeah. subconsciously. And that's entirely mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'm trying to see. There was there was another quote I wanted to read, but now I can't uh, I can't find and it. What's this book called? Is it just The Invisible Gorilla? Yep. yep. Okay. I'm going to find this book. Yeah, it is. It's one of those things that every time I read a chapter, I'm like, I just need to put this down and think about everything I just read. <laughs> because I mean, these are all experiments. They're not just philosophizing here. They're they're experimenting with this stuff and and how we perceive things and and these illusions we have. And like, I think one of the most dangerous illusions is the illusion of confidence. And I've talked about this before. Like they they would send someone to, uh, to two different doctors. One of the doctors, before saying what he thinks was wrong, would pick up a book, look through the book a bit, and they'd be like, "Okay, I think this is what's going on," and he would actually be correct. The other doctor would immediately be like, I know what this is, tell them, and it would be wrong. And then they'd, they'd have the people come to them and be like, okay, which doctor's advice would you listen to? And they'd say, oh, the second one, because he knew right off the bat what it was. Oh, interesting. And it Sounds was, like politics. Well, that's it. 
And I mean, yeah. people, but it's it's life in general. People who are very confident, um, it's it's the illusion. It, it, confidence is the illusion of competence. We mistake right. that easily, especially when coming from authorities. Uh, confidence increases as we gain skill, and our overconfidence decreases. Um, false confidence can be higher with people who know little about the subject and have a confident personality. Yeah, that also um, kind of goes into um, like uh, like penetration testing and and um, uh, infiltration and stuff. People who are more confident on the job and in portraying the cover, you know, or, or whatever, like pretending mm-hmm. to be the electrical worker. You know, if you look the part and you act confident, somebody's a lot more likely to believe you're supposed to be there than if you, you know, show up and, and you're not you're not giving off that confident vibe. Yes. Yeah. And we just try right, right. that, you know, which is probably not good. <laughs> and I mean, that's the thing. This is why you get people with followings who they're just very confident about everything they say. And, and people like that. You know, people yeah. are drawn yeah. to confidence. Well, this guy knows the answers. Look how confident he is. Without realizing that it's confidence does not equal, hey, I actually know what I'm talking about. Right, right. I wonder where that comes from. Yeah, that association with confidence to competence. And I mean, sure, there are probably plenty of people out there who are both competent and confidence. Or, and confident. <laughs> the words just went crazy in my head and now I can't. I can't. <laughs> you just have to visualize the words. Who are confident and competent. But the problem is all you need is, I mean, a lot of narcissists, people who have narcissistic personality disorder, yep. I mean, are super confident in everything they say, even if they know they're lying. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, well, that's, how, uh, that's how they draw but, people in. Yeah. Well, you know, there's that sort of anecdote about like, you know, the people that are actually smart are are too concerned about what they don't know or what they, all those things to be confident enough to lead. Yeah. What What, what is it? The Dunning-Kruger effect? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Dunning-Kruger effect occurs when a person's lack of knowledge and skills in a certain area caused them to overestimate their own competence. By contrast, this effect also causes those who excel in a given area to think that the task is simple for everyone and underestimate their relative abilities as well. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, so it says an example... Um, would be an amateur chess player overestimates their performance in the upcoming chess tournament compared to their competent counterparts. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like humility would help with uh, a lot of that. Well, sure, sure. But I, I, I think I always compare this. This was how I, I, I just have described it for years. Um, if you look at like computers, so you get someone who it's like, if you can complete a circle in any subject, uh, it seems like it makes sense and it feels like, oh, I really know this stuff. So you'll get people who maybe know how to run a virus scan or whatever, and their their parents will be like, I don't know what's wrong with the computer. And they're like, I'll fix it. And of course, then they make it worse because it wasn't as simple sure. as running a virus scan. Right, and they're in right. over their heads, but they have confidence because previously they were able to fix someone's computer just by doing a couple of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then they bring it to me and they're like, so my my son tried to fix it and now it's worse. You know, but they don't realize they don't know it because they don't know the uh, the the totality of what they're dealing with. They've right. made they've made that one circle, and they're like, "Oh, I got it now." Yeah, without realizing there's ninety nine other circles deeper down. Exactly, and that's yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, this is something that we deal with in everyday life. Like I said, with with the confidence thing. I mean, that's how con people are. You know, if you're a con man, you're very confident. That's where the word comes from. You know, yep. it's a mm-hmm. confidence mm-hmm. man. They're they're someone who can. 
with confidence convince you to give you their money. Or let me try that again. Give them your money. (laughs) (laughs) So, and how we overcome that, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's built into the way we perceive things. I mean, being aware of it is definitely one of those things. Uh, and that's, you know, when it comes to, like I was mentioning with like pen testing and stuff, a lot of that is figuring out what are, you know, human perception vulnerabilities. What are the things we take for granted or, or don't really, you know, um, the things we trust without really being able to verify them and finding ways to exploit those. And people do that in malicious ways, too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, in dealing with UFOs, you have someone like, and I'm trying to remember his first name, uh, Stephen, Stephen Greer. I mean, Stephen Greer is super confident in everything he's telling people about UFOs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's very, you know, and he's very good at making money, being very confident and telling people what he knows about UFOs. Um, the fact that it's, it's, you know, and some of it, sure, some of it's accurate. You know, when he talks about, you know, these things connecting to us, con- you know, our consciousness, stuff like that. Sure. Um, the experiments where they go out and try to summon UFOs, I mean, that stuff will have an effect for some people at certain times, but I mean, he's selling it as a product. Right, right. And, you know, he has his list of all these alien races that are coming and visiting, and he presents it in such a, I mean, I always called him like the used car salesman of the UFO field. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> because, again, a used car salesman, the good used car salesman is very confident that you're going to like this car. This car is everything you need, and it's in great shape, and it's going to, you know, it's it, you're going to be happy with it. And they're confident, if they're confident enough, you'll most likely buy the car. Whether or not it's a good car or not is a completely different question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and it's hard to get around that scammers, you know, uh, scammers and, and not even not scammers. When I worked at Best Buy, one of the things they, they, they were like, okay, here are your selling techniques. And a lot of these selling techniques were really kind of scams. How so? Well, like they would do things like uh, assume the sale was one of their things. So, mm-hmm. you would, you know, someone would be looking at a computer and you'd be like, okay, well, you know, can I just wrap that up for you? You're ready to go with it? You know, like you'd kind of like push their, their, their way of thinking into buying it to kind of a, mm-hmm. if, they had it, if they were on the fence about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these these are little tricks. I mean, you you can say they're not necessarily dishonest because, of course, the person could say no. You know, no, I'm, I don't want to buy it right now. But it's it's meant to kind of uh, push someone in that direction, right? Yeah. Psychologically right. manipulate people into doing right, right. You don't want to you don't want to give them time to think. And this is one of the things scammers will do. Yep. So scammers will call someone and they'll be like, "You need to do this right now. If you don't let me into your computer right now, you're gonna you're gonna lose all your stuff. You're not gonna have access to it." And especially older people who are not aware of how these scams work will be like, "Oh my god, okay, all right, here, what do I have to do?" You know. I had a customer that was taken literally for thousands of dollars because this, I mean, she was like 90 and this, this scammer called and just kept her convinced that, oh, we got to get into your system. They ordered all these gift cards and all this other stuff. And I, and I feel like people of that generation, they, they're not used to people behaving like that. Right. Right. And I felt very bad for this woman because even her family was like, how could you be so stupid? And I'm like, she's not stupid. She just doesn't expect someone to lie like that with such right, confidence, right. With, su- with such a surety, you know? Right. Who it's kind of sad. Yeah. And who just that. called her up on the phone. You know, I mean, it's one thing if you're at, if you're in Las Vegas or something or someone approaches you on the street, you, you can have some natural, well, okay, there's a lot of scammers around here, you know? But if someone calls you on the phone and says, hey, I'm from Microsoft and, and your system is infected and you don't really know, 
that, hey, Microsoft would never call you and tell you that. Right. Sure. Yes. Right. Well, and that's, you know, I mean, there are so many of those situations. I mean, you got to think at, at least the, the vast majority of people say no. Right. And you know, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. hopefully. Yeah. It, it's it's profitable enough for those people to continue doing that because enough people say yes. I mean, yes. like with spam emails, yeah. for instance, there are enough people that fall for like email scams. You know, I think I, I've heard statistics that are probably yeah, I'm going to make them up here in a second, but it was something very small. It was like three percent or whatever, you know, maybe even less of people actually fall for those scams. Mm -hmm. But the companies who are putting them out are contacting millions and millions and millions of people. Right. So that small percentage still adds up to enough money that it's profitable for them like year over year. You just keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and the thing is, like I said, people will be like, well, how could you be so stupid to fall for this? And it's like, it's not a matter of, of intelligence. These people are very good at what they're doing and they're very good at being manipulative. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. They're confidently controlling the situation and not giving you time to think. And that again, when I worked at Best Buy, that was one of the things they would be like. They're like, don't give them time to think about it. Just kind of, kind of lead them along to buying the thing you want them to set to, to buy. And I refuse yeah, to so do that shady. stuff. I, I yeah, that that bugged the hell out of me. Yeah. I've always had problems with that too. It's like, eh, you know, it feels unethical. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It is. Okay. But you're right. It is. It is unethical. <laughs> and, but at the same time, like I said, it's not, it's not out and out scamming somebody. Right. You know, you're not, you're, you're getting them the thing you say you're getting them. They're getting what they're, they're paying for. It's just, you're, you're, you're kind of trying to push them into buying it rather than letting them yeah. decide on their own if it's the thing they want. Right. But that's, that's, I think what's really interesting to me about education in, in terms of like preparing people for these types of situations, because a lot of the people who do, you know, become victims of those types of scams just straight up don't know, you know, they don't know that that's a thing someone would do, or they don't know what to, what to do in that kind of situation. If someone calls yeah. you and is pretending to be from your, you know, phone company or whatever, and they're asking for your account number or your credit card number, you know, the, the thing you should do in that moment realistically is, is say, you know, take a step back, try to remove that sense of urgency mm -hmm. and say, yeah. okay, thank you for bringing this to my attention. I'll deal with this and then hang up and call your phone company right. and exactly. explain what just happened. But right. not everybody, you know, we, we need, we need ways to bring those types of things and not just scams, but like the way that our perceptions work to people's attention so that they can be more prepared to defend themselves against whether it's a scammer or, you know, or, you know, misperceptions or, you know, um, misremembered things or whatever the case is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's, Harden our defenses. Let, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Quick mid-show break here. First contact info, contact at where the road go.com for general stuff. Contacting me about the show. Stories at where did the road go.com. If you have a story you'd like to share uh, for our listener stories show, www.wheredtheroadgo.com is, of course, where you can find links to everything, all our social media and such, from Facebook to Twitter to our Discord page. If you want to physically mail me something, the address is P.O. Box 444, Ovid, New York, 14521. And if you want to check out my metal show, which is also a weekly show, that has been going, well, coming up to 29 years now, it's been going and still going strong. Lots of stuff you won't hear elsewhere. So if you're into metal and uh, adjacent forms of music, you might want to check it out. It's at www.thelastexit.org. As for recommendations this week, I'm going with a book this time instead of a podcast. I've talked about this book before. Uh, it is such a good 
um, representation of these subjects uh, in fiction. Possibly one of the best ones I've ever seen. It's a book called Miracle Visitors from Ian Watson. And uh, the back cover, this came out in 19, uh, 1978, I believe. Yes, 1978. And the back says, Jinn. Fairies, demons, angels, elves, witches, UFOs. Throughout history, there have been reports of sightings of weird phenomena, reports at once too consistent to be ignored, but then too absurd to be real. But what if they are real? What if they are all aspects of the same reality, a reality at last ready to unveil itself? Um, I was really blown away by this book. Um, It's way ahead of its time in the way it deals with these subjects and high strangeness. And yeah, I, if, if you like fiction and you like these subjects, get yourself a copy of Miracle Visitors because you will thoroughly enjoy it. It is just such a fantastic story. All right. Um, so that's my recommendation for this week. As for the show tonight, if you want to uh, you know, leave comments or shoot me a message or stuff, about your experiences on how you visualize, you know, what ability you have to visualize versus like what your paranormal experiences are like if you've had any or if you haven't had them. Uh, I think it's an interesting thing to to look into and see uh, where there may or may not be connections. So, all right, let's go back to the conversation. So I am here with Taylor and Super Inframan, and we're talking about, I'm, I'm not even sure how to define <laughs> what we've been talking about tonight. <laughs> How we perceive things, uh, I guess, would be the yeah. the best way of putting good. it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. I think that's very good. Um, and of course, when, when we look at the world of the paranormal, too, I mean, there's so many people who are very confidently proclaiming, like Stephen Greer, you know, that they have the answers. They got this. This is what's happening. Um, whether it be UFOs, ghost hunters, or whatever, and some of that is is genuine. These people have had these experiences, and they're looking at it through this this lens. Um, and again, like ghost hunting is a great example. You get people who are like, look, we know we've captured evidence of ghosts because they have this thing on video or they have that thing on, on audio or whatever. But all they've done is recorded evidence of a phenomena. Right. And they're drawing conclusions. And it's, and it's like, it's, you're not proving the thing you think you're proving. You're, you may be proving if you have, if you're honestly collected that and there's no, technical glitch or anything else you've you've genuinely recorded an anomaly which is something that happens um that doesn't prove what caused it and this is the problem when people are like well you know why aren't there pictures it's like will it help because it still doesn't prove what it is right if you if you take that tic tac video that that of course made all the the news headlines it could have been a drone it could have been something of ours as we talked about earlier but maybe it was something anomalous but even if it was it doesn't tell us what it was yeah right um, that, I think that's, that's kind of the, the perception Oh, you know, much like the confidence conversation. Like if somebody says what it is or speculates about what it is confidently enough, people will start to just believe that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, you know, it's not, it's not good. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it, yeah, it's all tied back into like, well, I, I guess I should be believing this. Seems, this seems like the right thing to do. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm going to go with that. Um, and I'm sure you got imposter syndrome tied in there too. What would be interesting, and there's there's no way we could figure out how to do this, but um, look at the people that have never had a paranormal experience, but wonder if uh, I, I'm, I'm speculating they probably have, but their brain has decided that they're not going to remember it as a paranormal experience. Sure, sure. Mm. Because they're normal it, experiences. That's the thing. They they they're normal but rare experiences. 
Yes, yes. <laughs> they're yes. paranormal, but only because our society says they're not real. Yeah, right. Or slaps a, a specific thing onto it, like ghosts are the you know souls of the dead, or right. UFOs are right. aliens, and then that you know gets wrapped up in all this other cultural context. Whereas, yeah, we really you know don't know what they are, whatever the subject is, and you know it could be something totally you know ultimately mundane, even though sure. you know it might be rare. Um, and of course, there, there's also that binary sort of. Uh, viewpoint from the person who doesn't know a lot about it who will who will ask you a question like so do you believe in bigfoot uh-huh <laughs> and it's like well i mean i believe people are experiencing something that they yep. label as bigfoot but if you're asking me are you asking me do i believe in an ape in the woods like a physical creature we haven't discovered or are you asking me do i think people have that experience because yes people have that experience i don't think you, you that's an opinion there's enough evidence cross culture throughout time that yes, people have the experience of something that fits the description of Bigfoot. If you're asking me, do I think it's an uh, undiscovered ape? Well, that I don't know. In I've some got, cases, maybe, kind of an, and in some cases, certainly not. I've got an issue with that type of question because you know people people have asked me that before about Bigfoot or about UFOs and whatnot. Yeah, and you know, and if I ask back, like, well, what do you mean, right? I, the the answer that I get, the clarification that I get is never good. You know, it's it's never specific. It's it's always you know loaded with assumptions. And the the worst part is then when I you know later on, like talking to somebody else, try to ask them, you know, if they believe, for instance, if they believe in UFOs or have seen a UFO. That question is already wrapped in that in that cultural assumption of what that thing is. And, it, you know, it's it's hard to have the conversation without trying to explain to somebody the background context of like all of, you know, the possibilities and, and the how little we know about those types of things. Right. Exactly. I used to be really bad, um, you know, this is 20 years ago, but regarding certain reports when they would talk about UFOs and Bigfoot and things like that, all kind of like clustered together in a flat because it made me think of someone's making up a report based off of that sort of binary approach of thinking like, well, UFOs and Bigfoot are the same thing. Um, and obviously there's, you know, we know there's all kinds of aspects to the phenomenon, but before I was more sophisticated about it, I was kind of like, well, why would you see a biological ape and, and a, a flying saucer together? Right. right. You know, but if yeah. you were on the outside and you thought all these things were silly and they went together, you're like, oh yeah, Bigfoot was there too, you know? And 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 imagine how much data on this weird stuff we've lost over the century or so that we've been recording it because, you know, this thing doesn't go with that thing. So we're not going to record that this thing also happened. Right, right, exactly. Right. Or, or, or looking back at all of the, uh, like, archaeological evidence and stuff that's gone missing because of, you know, because it doesn't conform to some Oh, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, as well, and it's something we still don't really do is to ask the witnesses, you know, what was going on at the time. Okay, you had this encounter. What was happening in your life? Was there turmoil in your life at the time? Was it just another day? Was it, you know, so on and so forth? Because I think, you know, as we know, what's and as I found out personally, what's going on in your life sometimes has an effect as when you have these experiences. Um, again, as as Jeffrey Kripal said, that the supernatural happens in your life for a reason. Yeah, yeah which makes it really interesting because, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, I think it's it's also hard to try to pinpoint what that reason is. I mean, you can, oh, sure. you know, Soraya, you have, you have notes, right? You can go back and look through notes and see, exactly. oh, these things happened at this time and this is also going on and make correlations. But even, you know, even that isn't necessarily what caused that to happen, right? There may be something else that's causing all of those things and that they're all sort of an epiphenomenon of some other force or factor. 
Right. But we just you know, don't well, necessarily know. Well, the, the giant UFO over Cayuga Lake happened at a massive uh, shift in my life, mm-hmm. which I didn't associate with seeing a UFO. I mean, I'd never seen a UFO before that. I was like, whoa, you know, like, what the hell? And it didn't occur to me that, oh, this is happening at that time. Uh, the other one I described earlier with the, the like portal-like things happened literally the day, the night uh, of the day my girlfriend moved in with me. Mm, okay. And I'll so at that point, I looked up, saw that, and went, why am I not surprised? You know? Right. But, you know, but can you draw, can you draw connections between those things causally? No, no, absolutely not. But there's a pattern there. Right. There's a pattern there. And I wonder, you know, at least in some contexts, like for folks that keep track of these things, do they make sense later on when they go back and look at it, you know, uh, with a little bit more depth? Because these all have a very generally these sort of experiences have a certain mythic quality to them, you know, or like, yeah. OK, oh, yeah, which is totally. which is how our brains work in a certain way. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's an interesting point, because so much of, of our perception and, and even memory and stuff to come back around to, you know, or imagination is story driven. Yes. That's yes. Really interesting. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like oral sure. traditions that go through thousands of years, of, you know, telling stories that get written down and passed down and all this other stuff. I think yeah. I think it was Aaron Daba, who I had on the show a couple of times, had made the comment that life doesn't really, ha- you know, your life doesn't really have a narrative. We just put one there. But sure. as as I go and look at like the stuff that's happened to me, I'm like, no, there's actually a narrative. <laughs> like, because here I am having dreams with information about stuff that's going to happen six years later, and then that stuff happens. It's like that's kind of a narrative. Yeah, uh, that's kind of a narrative, and it, and I I think there's something to be said about you know if we go back and look at, at cave art and things like that, you know, uh, in prehistory and and whatever else. Like, because that's also the beginning of language and the beginning of things being written down, uh, how fundamental that is to or, or the clue there of how we think and the way we tell ourselves stories to process information. Um, I don't know. It, I think that mythic aspect of storytelling and the, the basis of like, you know, there's only a few stories in the world that just keep getting retold and archetypes that all fits yeah, in there together yeah. somehow. And it's certainly very it's a very neat package when you really look at it. It's, yeah, it is. They're, they're, yeah, they're like the hero's journey is a common one, but I mean, there are new stories that get told, new new uh, archetypes that get, get built eventually, or people come up with new ways to tell a narrative. That's true. That's true. It's just not common. It takes someone who can really see outside the box to do that. I uh, <laughs> to to use a, a wrestling metaphor in a sense. Um, back in the uh, <laughs> the days when wrestling was hyper popular, back in the late nineties. I believe it was Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff who made the comic because they were, they were just replicating a lot of stuff that had already been done uh, in WCW. They were just kind of repeating the WWF stuff from the 80s. Um, and they said, well, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Meanwhile, you had this little startup company in ECW who was doing stuff completely differently, you know, who was introducing yeah. new ways of, of you know, uh, of having matches, new styles of matches. I mean, yeah, it was still wrestling. But it was done on such a completely different level that it revolutionized the entire industry. Yeah, and the same thing happens with stories. Right. And well, that's right, what I'm right. saying. I mean, because wrestling essentially is a story, basically. Sure, yeah. uh, but like, it, it, if you think, oh, there's nothing new, we just have to kind of work with what we have, you're not going to come up with anything new. Yeah. Um, have, have you guys seen, there's a new movie um, called, this is sort of a, a change in subject a little bit, but 
on the on the topic of unique stories, um, Knock at the Cabin. I have not watched it yet. I haven't watched it yet. I've heard about it. Okay, I've heard and good I things I about spoil it. it. It's pretty good. Well, um, I mean, have have you guys seen Cloud Atlas? Yes. See now, you know, there there is a unique storytelling device. What, what? So I've only seen it once, um, and I remember liking it a lot. And then and later on, thinking back at it, I don't remember what I liked about it. What what? <laughs> What was what was unique about it in your in your eyes? Well, if I remember right, because it's been a while since I've watched it, but they basically took a bunch of different like uh, parallel lives in different time frames and different worlds and interspersed yep. them together in a three hour movie that felt like it went by in about an hour uh, because it constantly jumped from one world to the other. And it seemed like these were the reincarnational existences of these people. Yep. And so you saw yeah. them having, but they were all kind of happening at the same time. And they, they illustrated that by dropping, by constantly shifting from one wor- one story to the next without letting any of them linger very long. Yeah. And yeah, I, I need to rewatch that. I remember really liking that movie when I first saw it. And it's something that could drive some people nuts, but it's also because it doesn't have a straight, easy to follow narrative. You just kind of like experience it. But the the narrative, there was like a common thread running through all of it that had to yes. do with like truth, like universal truth and, and something. Sure. Sure. Something like that. But it, was, it wasn't told in a standard way. Yep. And it wasn't a very like overdone archetype. Like the hero's journey is probably one of the most over, overdone archetypes, but something we still respond to. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the oldest story. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, bring it back all the way to like the Epic of Gilgamesh and, you know, I'm sure earlier things too, but. Uh, and again, you, know. you, you look at wrestling, so much of that is the hero's journey. It's the guy, you know, striving to get the belt and get to the top, you know, um, that's that's always the ultimate story and who's going to decrown the king. But there's also different ways to tell those that that same story, oh, right? Yeah. Like even yeah, though yeah. it's the same outline, you can really go in a lot of different directions with it and put, you know, um, things like you know moral spins on it, sure. or or shift oh, the perspective sure. of you know what's going on. Or you're or you're John Wick trying to re- revenge the death of his dog. Yeah, man. In a sense, that's a hero's journey. It's him trying to get to the person who you know called for you know called for his assassination that killed his dog. And stole his car, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. But I think I think if I remember the beauty of that movie being that all of this was caused because they killed the dog. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Which I can relate to. Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of people could, and I think that's why that movie got over so well. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, the the fourth one is coming out. I think the trailer comes out in like two days. Yeah, something like Uh, that. But it's going to be like three hours long too. I mean, I I enjoyed all three, but the first one definitely. But but again, in a sense, that's a variation on the hero's journey. It is. It is. He's overcoming all this stuff to, you know, avenge his dog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember when they they talked about stripping stories down to like their most generic form. You know, you've got like men or, you know, human versus himself uh, versus, you know, there's only like six like generic, generic. Right. Sort of like frameworks. But you get to put all of this stuff in there with like, uh, you know, uh, like you're talking about the moral spin tailor where they go out and do these things. They attain whatever they're trying to get to. But was it worth it? You know, did they become a horrible person in the process or did they become an enlightened person in the process of attaining this goal? And uh, sure. yeah, but, you know, uh, John Wick, I, I kind of feel like it's not exactly like, uh, uh, oh, my gosh, Count of Monte Cristo. But I sort of feel like it, it's the modern interpretation mm. in society, like it fills in that role somehow. Um, 
and but, it's certainly not a one for one thing, but something about that feels very bright to me. But then, then if you take someone like Lovecraft, like what archetype does his work fall into, especially his, his yeah. weirder stuff, you know? Because yeah, it's certainly yeah. not a hero's journey. It's more well, a confronting, you know, uh, the the infinite. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I I do a lot of um, stuff that involves like cosmic horror, and it it really feels like the the crux of it is about exploring the inability to know some things, right? Yeah. Like you know, fi- facing something that is so unknowable that you know that that kind of fear of lack of control that that creates. Um, I think that that's a really big, you know, key point. Uh, I just finished up uh, a long running campaign of, of a, a King in yellow, um, uh, related Delta green game. And it, it took 15 months. Uh, and by the end of it, um, uh, basically all my players didn't really feel like they had a satisfying ending. They didn't feel like they understood the point. Mm. Um, there, there really wasn't anything that was like, like it was, it was a story, but it was a very bleak story, and it was, it was a story of kind of losing control and being sucked into this sort of, um, you know, this this endless black hole of of meaninglessness that you know that doesn't work for some people, right? That, oh yeah, that's it's a really challenging thing uh, that I, I think you know I find a lot of value in that type of thing. I don't know why. I could not tell you why. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's a different experience of reality. Yeah, and so Soraya, you've seen Twin Peaks, right? Of course, have you seen all of it with yeah. the return and the yep. movie and everything. Okay, and Saxon, have you ever seen Twin Peaks? Uh, I, I've been forced to watch it because of <sighs> I'm friends with you guys. Oh, <laughs> uh, so you have? Did you did you watch all of it? Not all of it, but I, I'm very familiar with it now. Yeah. Okay. All right. But you say that well, like you didn't like it. Did you not like it? Oh no, I did like... enjoy it. I'm okay. Not I just laugh because like I remember one of the first times uh, you and Chris started talking about, it, and you're like, Saxon, have you watched it? I'm like, no. And then I felt like I had to. <laughs> That's <laughs> I, fair. It, it should brother. be required viewing for. Yeah, you did. Everybody on Earth. But yeah. the, the problem with Twin Peaks is that the, the story that it's telling, it, it's sort of doing two things. It, it's, it's telling a story on the surface that I think is really interesting and compelling. And it's telling a story underneath those layers that, that is very difficult to see until you see it. And then you put it together through the entire narrative of what's going on. And it, it, it makes all of the rest of it make sense, including the surface story. In a way that I've never seen that done before in I'm, anything. I'm not sure it ever fully makes sense. I, I think there's a key to it. Um, there's there's a particular thing that's going on in the entirety of Twin Peaks. Uh, all of the original seasons, the movie, the return, that there's one common thread that holds all of it together. And in if you discover what that thread is, and I don't really want to say it because it'll spoil it'll. I think it'll spoil the fun of the mystery of trying to understand it. But if you, if you kind of, if you feel out what that key is, you can apply it to anything in Twin Peaks and all of it makes sense in the context of why that show exists. Mm, Okay. Um, It's, it's really, really cool. And the thing is, do we, do we create new archetypes over time? I mean, I would say the cosmic horror Mm. archetype is something that is fairly recent in the history of mankind. Is it? I don't know. That's what I'm asking. I mean, well, because I no, mean, I, we, we had, you know, the God archetype, but the right. cosmic horror is the unknowable. And whereas gods were always knowable and almost anthropo, uh, yep, that word anthropomorphized. Sure. Um, yeah. there wasn't that, that, that cosmic indifferent unknown. Yeah. Um, I, I think you do get some of that with some of the more, um, like platonic kind of stuff, but a lot of that tends to deal with like, um, things like the underworld and death and, and, um, the unknowability of death. Right. And how, you know, it, 
it's this force that we can't really understand. But, uh, you know, and I think the cosmic horror is unique, um, but it also, to me, feels a little bit derivative of some of that stuff. Well, um, which maybe that's everything. Sure, sure. I mean, things are, you know, everything's derivative of something. But I think when you deal with those concepts of death, like Zimbalba and stuff like that, uh, the underworld, hell, these are all structured. And the yeah, thing about yeah. cosmic horror is that it's unstructured. Yeah, you know, the crawling chaos. Right. Yes. It's it's chaos. It's unstructured. It's unknowable. It's not something. Whereas, like these realms of death, yeah, death is unknowable directly to us. I mean, even if you die and come back, it's still you're not dead anymore. You know, even though we may exist in that realm already while we're here, or a part of us may, uh, it's it's un directly unknowable to us while we're here. Mm -hmm. But it's not. So we build these constructs around it. You know, like this is what happens. It's all order, you know, on some level. You know, if you look at the Judeo current Judeo-Christian idea of, of you know, you, you get sent to heaven or hell. You know, you're judged on your actions, you're sent to heaven and hell. Or something, you know, I mean, every everyone has a slightly different variation, but it's very structured. Yep. So, you know, like, which is why I, you know, when I suggest things like what happens to us when, it, when we die may vary from person to person. It may not be a set thing because, I mean, how many things in life are that set? So why would death be any different? Well, isn't it what well, it's death and taxes, right? <laughs> the two certainties of life. Yeah, I mean, that's, neither, and neither that's true. As far as we know, death is a certainty. But yeah. until you die, yeah. it's not. And what happens at that point mm -hmm. is is not known. Regardless, right. you right. know, even the people who who you know experience death of some kind and come back and talk about it, you know, there's there's commonalities you can find between those things. And I think um, you've talked about um, Seth kind of listing some of those. Yeah, but oh, they're yeah. different in and of themselves. Like they're different between each one. Right. Right. And then each individual experience in those categories are also different. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and people have good experiences, bad experience. And of course, if you have a negative experience, you, you know, in, in our culture, in the Western culture, it automatically is like, oh, I went to hell. You well, went to hell. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, that's just, that's what you have to hang it on because you don't have any other concept of what might've happened to you. Yep. Real quick, before we get too far away from uh, cosmic horror and, and a hero's journey, I just want to throw this out here. Uh, you know, if you listen to Joseph Campbell talk about the hero's journey, he always talks about, you know, the, the hero goes out and comes back after his challenge with some type of new knowledge or boon that he brings back to his home. Right. You know, that, you know, and the, the treasure is the metaphor for that experience or that knowledge. But uh, with the cosmic horror, as opposed to having the knowledge of something, you're getting the complete incre uh, incomprehensible, <laughs> you know, aspect yeah. of it. So it's the opposite. It's the opposite, you know, and, and I think that makes it very archetypal, but it also is like right. gives it so much power because it is the flip of, you know, the, this like very fundamental story that we've always told ourselves. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to get that out there before we got too far away because it just hit me in the back of my mind. I was like, oh, we should mention that. Well, we're also <laughs> we're also out of time. So, oh, OK, uh, <laughs> Saxon, where can people find you? Uh, you know, I hang out around the discord. I am on Instagram and I occasionally, occasionally float around on Facebook and, uh, uh, Mastodon. So it's, it's, it's under super Inframan or Saxon Williams. Yes. Yes. That's correct. And Taylor, what do you got uh, going on? Lately, I've been floating around the ether. Um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm various places. I'm on Discord and and sometimes pop on Mastodon. Um, if uh, if you find me, say hi. If you, you have don't, your don't feel too bad. Your tarot deck? Yeah, uh, a lot of that's kind of slowing down. Um, but yeah, it's uh, Sigil Arcanum Tarot. You, you can uh, you can find that. Uh, I think right now the website's um, 
under under construction. So Kickstarter probably. But uh, okay. and Greenline Podcast is is out there, although I haven't uh, put one out recently. Um, but yep. did just start uh, a, a a podcast called Stories and Lies. So if you're into Delta Green or tabletop role playing, uh, check that out. It's an ongoing story. All right. Thank you both. Thank you, Shira. Yeah, thank you. I want to take a moment here to thank all of my Patreons and give a special shout out to those of you pledging $10 or more. Billuminati, Chuck Shutters, Leanne Cherry, Matt in Delaware, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Indrid Cold, 36 Dingo, CJ, Tim, Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Christine, a blue second gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Ann Witowski, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy Incommunicable, Chris, Greg Cicernos, Greg Parmenter, Diane B, MTK, Eric Todd, Jay, Jay Otto Bullet, James Lattimore, James Lindsay, Jim and Sophie, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Kristen L, Laser Printer Jam, Lauren McLean, Linz Jackson K, Caroline Walker, Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Mark Brady, Mr. Weird, Oli Andre Olar, Patricia W, Paul Jeffries, Philosopher of Mirrors, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Ron Dupre, Sam Sharon, Seed Person One, Stacy Sherwood, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, Thunderboy, Tyler Glimstead, Varosh K, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, Will Powell, and Ren Collier. Thank you all so very, very much. There's a Patreon segment in addition to this conversation. We continue. And uh, that'll be up later in the week for Patreons. www.wheretheroadgo.com If you want to become a patron, it's only $3 a month. You get extra stuff all month long and shows a week early. I want to thank some new patrons uh, for this week. Deb Silva, Mike Jorgensen, Jad, Clarence Noyes, and Robot Kitty. Okay, so I'm going to take you out with some brand new Drama Scream. They have a new EP out, which is entitled Revive. And this is a track called What I've Become from that EP, and I will see you next time.
have been listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support.